1: North Korea and potential uh, negotiations with the U.S. We did find out uh, that top representatives, um, namely CIA director uh, Mike Pompeo, did meet with Kim Jong-un, the leader of North Korea in recent weeks. Joining us now to discuss, I'm very pleased to say, is Admiral James Stavridis, retired U.S. general, uh, U.S. Navy admiral and former military commander of NATO. He is a current dean of the Fletcher School at Tufts University and a Bloomberg View contributor. Uh, Admiral Stavridis, thank you so much for being with us. Are we being played with these negotiations
2: Uh, I would say it's too soon to tell. Um, There is a possibility that there is a sincerity here uh, driven, let's face it, by financial exigencies in North Korea uh, and the fact that he really has nuclear weapons now. Uh, So he may feel, in all honesty, that uh, this is a good point for him to negotiate. I think we are being played if we think that he's going to give up those nuclear weapons. I do not think he will.
0: Uh, Admiral Stavridis, uh, Japanese uh, Prime Minister Shinzo Abe meeting with uh, President Donald Trump uh, in Florida at Mar-a-Lago. What do you think the position of the Japanese is vis-a-vis what is uh, seemingly a bilateral negotiation between the United States and North Korea?
2: I think they will push very hard to expand these talks rapidly. Uh, the next step should be to go from bilateral, as you correctly point out, U.S., North Korea, to four-party talks to bring in South Korea and China. We will never solve this problem without fully integrating China into the discussion. Once we make some serious progress, hopefully through four-party talks, then I think you have to go to six-party talks. That's when Japan Japan and Russia come into the equation. This is the work of a year or two. And if President Trump thinks he's going to sit down across the table from Kim Jong-un and walk out with the Nobel Peace Prize, that is not going to happen. This is going to be the work of at least a year of solid negotiation, building toward inclusion of our Japanese allies.
1: Given the work that lies ahead, is this meeting premature?
2: I don't think so. I think that this is a reasonable time to try a kind of uh, dramatic gesture that might crack this thing open and move it in a positive direction. Another way to put it is compared to where we were Four months ago, before the Olympics, when we had nuclear detonations and ballistic missiles flying over Japan and headed toward Guam, this is a better place to be in. But we should not be overly euphoric about what's ahead, and we ought to understand that this is hard work. Negotiations and diplomacy are time-consuming and difficult, especially with someone like Kim Jong-un.
1: Admiral Stravridis, I want to get your view on CIA Director Mike Pompeo, since he was the one who traveled to North Korea last week to meet with the North Korean leader. Uh, What do you think of him as sort of the initial uh, spokesperson
2: for the U.S.? I think it would have been a very odd choice, except for the fact that he is nominated and I think has a better than even chance of being confirmed as the next Secretary of State. Given that, it makes sense. If if he had been planned to stay at the CIA for the next three or four years, I think it would have been a very strange choice. Leaving that kind of structural answer aside as a person, I think he's a very good choice. He, is, he has high emotional intelligence. Um, he's academically very well prepared, West Point grad, first in his class there, um, coming out of the CIA. He has a depth now in intelligence, former congressman, so he gets the political piece of this. I think he's a very reasonable choice, given that he is on tap to become Secretary of State.
0: Admiral Stavridis, uh, just quickly, uh, John Bolton, National Security Advisor, reaching out to Egypt and other Arab nations in order to replace the U.S. and Syria. Is that going to work?
2: I think it's unlikely that we are going to wholesale replace the U.S. The idea that we're going to just step away and our Sunni Arab friends are going to step in is unrealistic. But I think the idea of building a coalition that includes significant Sunni Arab states to include Jordan, Saudi Arabia, Gulf states, as well as Egypt, I think makes sense. It will require U.S. boots on the ground. We're not going to be able to just leave the region.
1: I'm trying to get a sense of what the U.S.'s relationship is at this point with its allies, with grappling, uh, with Syria in particular. Do you get a sense of how much more uh, the U.S. is working with its allies in light of what happened there?
2: We will continue to try and build the coalition in preparation for the possibility of another round of strikes. Let's face it, um, we have now struck twice, but in the interim between those two strikes, we've seen Assad continue to use chemical weapons with impunity. I am unconvinced that he's going to have a sudden epiphany like St. Paul on the road to Damascus and stop using those weapons. So we better be prepared for another strike, and that means getting our allies, partners, and friends on board.
1: The reason why I ask that, Admiral Stavridis, is because there's been so much tension with respect to trade and a lot of harsh words back and forth between the U.S. and allies, and I'm wondering how much that plays into some of these military relationships that are
2: required for conflicts like this. It absolutely does, and one of the uh, very strong arguments for Uh, maintaining balanced global relationships is that in times of trouble, you need friends and you can't surge trust. Um, You've got to build it a brick at a time. And when you knock it down uh, with a series of bad choices economically, it does bleed over into your day-to-day military intelligence and operational relationships.
0: Admiral Stavridis, what is the U.S. strategic reason for being in Syria?
2: I'll give you four reasons, and I I think these will call that we need to remain in Syria. The first is uh, quite straightforward, and that is continuing to destroy the Islamic State. The second is we have a shared interest with the global community in stopping the use of chemical weapons, which appears to be continuing forthwith. Uh, Thirdly, Um, We have a strategic challenge with Iran in that region who threatens Israel, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, and other Sunni states. And fourth and finally, um, there's an enormous humanitarian crisis in Syria. And I think we have a moral obligation to be part of uh, resolving that. To do that, you have to create security in the region. So I'll give you those four reasons.
1: Admiral Stavridis, they're all uh, legitimate reasons. One thing that is also at play, though, is President Trump's support uh, from his base. And there was a lot of pushback after these strikes in Syria with people saying, "Uh, President Trump, you said that you wanted to pull troops out of the U.S., uh, out of Syria, rather. Uh, Why should those conflicts be our cost? We should just turn our focus on ourselves. How much
2: does that factor into the debate and the strategy of the U.S.? I think it will play a significant role, and it should um, we these are national decisions, and that's what leaders do. They ought to step up and explain why they need to uh, continue to take. The hard right choice, not the easy wrong choice. And I think that uh, the fact that President Trump essentially reversed his position uh, several days later is a good indicator that people like Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis and CIA Director Pompeo and others convinced him to do so. So I don't think we're going to leave Syria anytime soon point one. And point two, uh, the level of engagement is very different here than the 150,000 troops that we had in Iraq or the 160,000 troops that I commanded in Afghanistan when I was NATO commander. We're talking Two, three, five thousand troops. 5,000 um, troops. This is a very sustainable commitment for the United States, and I think good leaders will recognize that and seek to explain it to the American public.
1: Just to wrap up here, Admiral Stavridis, uh, given the fact that you are the author of Sea Power, the History and Geopolitics of the World's Oceans, the fact that you uh, were formerly U.S. Navy Admiral, former military commander of NATO, given your vast experience uh, with the international relations on the military front, Are you more optimistic about the uh, sort of global outlook right now than you were two months ago? I am
2: cautiously, very cautiously optimistic on North Korea. I think there's a a real possibility of negotiating our way out of what two or three months ago pre-Olympics looked very, very dangerous In terms of the Middle East, I am more pessimistic because I uh, don't see a strategic plan being laid out by the administration, and simply lobbying Tomahawk missiles is not going to get us where we need to go there. So it's a mixed picture, uh, but overall, um, I am very concerned, uh, finally, about great power politics. And the dynamics of our relationship with both Russia and China have degraded over the last three or four months. So, running it all together, I'd say we're on a a downtrend right now, and we've got some work to do.
0: I want to thank you very much for spending time with us. Admiral James Stavridis is the dean of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, uh, also a Bloomberg View columnist, uh, joining us from Boston, home to Bloomberg 1061 Boston Newburyport in 1330 in Metro West and the South Shore. And uh, Admiral Stavridis is the author of Sea Power, the History and Geopolitics of the World's Oceans. The use of cryptocurrencies not only is uh, gaining popularity when it comes to uh, international transactions for businesses, but uh, also uh, being used by people for retail transactions uh, on which they would like to uh, maintain their privacy. And uh, the premier online destination for adult entertainment, it's called Pornhub, has announced that it is now accepting anonymity-focused cryptocurrency, Verge, in order to keep current with what it describes as its community's payment preferences. And here to tell us more about Verge and cryptocurrencies is Justin Velo. He is the founder and the CEO of Verge. Justin, thanks very much for for coming in. Can you first tell us, what is Verge? Uh,
3: Verge is a cryptocurrency. Uh, It's very similar to the Bitcoin blockchain, Um, but it's also modified. It has much faster transaction time. Uh, Bitcoin has about a 10 minute transaction time for, for a confirmation of a transaction. Ours is about 30 seconds, um, and uh, we have a much higher supply because we believe that it's better for distribution. The more the more coins we have, the better. So Bitcoin has minted or will mint in its lifetime 21 million coins, whereas we will be minting 16.5 billion. Uh, so you know we're we're a, you know we're a, a what we see as a more fair currency.
1: Okay, so just to give some perspective, the uh, cryptocurrency has about a $1 billion market cap, and it has increased quite a bit uh, over the past few months. You know, uh, we're talking about pornography, which is sort of interesting because we stay away from it, but it's a huge business. And uh, Pornhub has nearly 100 million daily users, and people don't want other people to see that they're buying pornography, uh, which is why uh, there must be some interest in a secret way of delivering payment. Who approached who with this transaction?
3: Um, it was sort of a mutual approach. Um, I believe that people from, our we have a very, very big community of, uh, you know, people that are very interested in the coin and very excited about the project itself. Uh, so I believe that, you know, people from our community, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, and I believe that they started initiating contact with them, probably through their website, you know, saying, Hey, we would really like you guys to start supporting cryptocurrencies.
1: Okay, I'm wondering, though, what this does for the reputation of cryptocurrencies, that people kind of want to cloak their actions and are looking for ways of doing so. And, you know, pornography is uh, some people might, you know, shake their head at it, but it's not, you know, a terrorist activity, but somebody could potentially use it for that.
3: Absolutely. Um, People deserve privacy, especially in that aspect of their life. Um, And you mentioned the 100 million uh, visitors a day uh, statistic, which is interesting. But what I find more interesting is that it's actually over a billion unique visitors a year which is actually a double-digit percentage of our population on Earth. So I think that that's, uh, you know, a little bit more important to look at. It's, it's a very common thing, and, uh, you know, there's still some stigma um, around uh, sexual preferences, uh, you know, fetishes, things like that. But, you know, th- these things, uh, you know, if we all love and respect one another, this is none of our business, and we shouldn't judge each other by it. But we live in a, in a time and age still where people do. So it's, you know, it's very important that people have privacy, and especially online.
0: I'm wondering if you could just describe uh, for our listeners how do you raise the money in order to have all of these coins, these these uh, artificial tokens.
3: Okay. Well, see, a lot of projects that launch do what's called an ICO, which is obviously very similar to an IPO. Initial
0: coin offering.
3: Yes. Right. Um, And then there's also did you do one of those? No, we did not.
0: How did you raise the money? Uh, Through the community. So Uh, you used an online source, like a crowdfunding site, in order to do so? Yes, and it's it's voluntary. Okay, so what has been your response to people that say that the coins that were created as a result of that fundraising effort, that many of those coins either disappeared or that the money that they then used to purchase these digital coins has been locked and they cannot get it out of their wallets?
3: Oh, that—that's not how it goes. Uh, it's basically like throwing your money into a pot. Um, what What we've done is we've given uh, some a lot of these funds for integration of Verge into the actual platform, the software platform behind Pornhub. Um, but then we've also had other goals, like we're building an iOS wallet. Um, you know, we're looking to get integrated into a hardware device uh, for even stronger uh, storage of yeah, the coins. but, but I understand.
0: But but my question is that if if there is this fundraising that went on. There's publicly available information that says that over eighteen million of these well no they, they they were simply moved were mo- right. but were they moved with the knowledge of the people who had invested?
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think everybody knew going in that these funds were allocated for specific things, and that's what they're being used for.
1: I'm just wondering uh, what else have you thought of partnering with I mean any cannabis companies or other types of things like that
3: uh, that that's absolutely another one like you know a medical marijuana industry is another one where um, you know there's a stigma to it where you don't you may not want your employer or some of your even friends uh, to, you know to know that that's part of your lifestyle
1: you know and this is something that I was trying to get at earlier I mean it's one thing for there to be a stigma around sexual preferences there's another thing uh, to sort of have money laundering or financing oh, you sure. know, terrorist activities how do you prevent prevent that type of use from this coin?
3: Well, I mean, at the moment, I would say that most of uh, those nefarious things that happen with currencies probably stem from the U.S. dollar. Um, I mean, when's the last time, you know, you heard a story about us uh, going into a terrorist location and uncovering pallets of cryptocurrency or finding hard drives with Bitcoins? We don't. We find pallets of, you know, shrink-wrapped $100 bills. Well,
1: one of the biggest owners of of Bitcoin is the U.S. government from actually... Seizing. seizing. Yeah. yeah. yeah so, so there is there is that yeah. activity. And if, if basically right. this is a designed cryptocurrency to cloak activities, you have to wonder that's going to be a motivation for people to use it.
3: Sure. But I think that we can see um, I mean, similar to the Tor project, which is a uh, open source uh, piece of software that helps hide your IP address that was actually originally developed by the U.S. government. So, I mean, I think to, to some degree, uh, you know, privacy is important and the U.S. government recognizes that, too.
1: So interesting having you on. Thank you so much for being with us. Justin Velo, founder and chief executive officer of Verge Cryptocurrency, just announcing uh, that it is partnering with Pornhub to allow people to pay for their pornography consumption uh, with a cloaked identity uh, through the crypto asset. Fascinating discussion.
0: He is the finance minister of uh, Luxembourg, Uh, Pierre Gramegna joins us now. And uh, just to give some context, many people may not know that Luxembourg City uh, is one of the three official capitals of the uh, European Union. Indeed, it is the seat of the European Court of uh, Justice. And uh, from that perspective, uh, he has an interesting look into the role of trade and uh, taxes and a variety of other issues in the European Union. And he joins us here in our 1130 studios. Minister, thank you very much for being with us, appreciate it. Pleasure to be there. Uh, Maybe just uh, set uh, for our listeners a little bit about Luxembourg, your role and the role of Luxembourg, which uh, belies its size in the European Union because uh, it has served as a nation that has tried to
4: mediate and to help integrate uh, Europe uh, since the creation of the EU. Uh, You're absolutely right. Uh, Luxembourg is a founding member of the European Union. It it was the smallest one of the six uh, founding members. It is today the second smallest one. But being uh, at the heart uh, of uh, the European continent between uh, Germany and France and having been uh, also the victim of two world wars, we're probably the most staunch advocate for uh, European reconciliation. And the European Union has achieved that we haven't had any war in Europe uh, since the setting up of the European uh, carbon and steel in '52 and the European community uh, in 1958 and that's often forgotten and uh, we continue to keep that uh, on our mind and act as a mediator as an, a neutral uh, partner to find solutions uh,
1: You are a neutral partner uh, also to asset managers and other investment companies that have put their headquarters in Luxembourg uh, a lot of corporations have as Well, in part because of beneficial uh, tax treatment that they get for going to Luxembourg. How much pressure are you getting right now uh, from other European countries, given the need to raise money and given the need uh, to sort of prevent a race to the bottom with respect to weakening tax rules?
4: Well, we've had a a rough ride uh, in in the past uh, on these issues of taxation, but since 2014, the present government has changed its route. Uh, In this matter, we have given up the bank secrecy laws, that was uh, one uh, of the the criticisms that we were receiving. It was something that was uh, not um, anymore accepted. Uh, It was an old tradition in many countries, not only in ours. We decided uh, to part with that and to embrace tax transparency. And since then, obviously, the pressure is far less. We have, uh, obviously, uh, attractive tax rates, but if you look at the uh, average of taxes uh, of Luxembourg in the OECD, we're just Uh, In the middle field. Now, Uh, I get pressure in my country very often that we should uh, have lower taxes than what we have now. Really? Yes. I mean, we have a corporate tax rate of 18%. If you add uh, municipal taxes, you get a 26%. So, I think this is a decent amount.
1: Have any companies or, or fund managers removed their uh, premises, for, or have removed their headquarters from Luxembourg as a result?
4: N- no, because uh, the reason why we were successful was not based solely on taxation. I think if you look at uh, uh, what happened in the Brexit context, uh, we are one of the winners uh, short term in the sense that uh, quite a few players in London had to find a place on continental Europe because they are losing the passport for financial services into the EU single market and uh, many chose Luxembourg. I mean, I think of American banks uh, who have decided to beef up uh, their uh, private banking hub in Luxembourg. They could have chosen other places. I I think of uh, asset management firms that have taken the same decision. I I think of insurance companies. It shows that uh, the, the general framework of Luxembourg is attractive. We are one of the 10 countries left in the world that have a triple A rating financially. This is important when you're an international financial center. We've been able to attract Chinese banks to Luxembourg. The seven largest Chinese banks are in Luxembourg. Some have come more recently. So it shows that fortunately what we were pretending that it is a, a full international ecosystem that we have that explains why we've been successful. It's not only about taxes. Uh,
0: minister, uh, before you were uh, the uh, finance minister, you also served as the country's ambassador uh, to Japan and South Korea, yes. also uh, the uh, consul general and director of the Board of Economic Development in San Francisco. So you have a, a global perspective about how companies and countries uh integrate in order to uh, do business. Recently, uh, the United States has taken the position that certain types of optical component technology cannot be sold to certain Chinese companies. There's a company uh, in Boston, uh, Acacia, and also in uh, San Francisco, uh, Oclaro. Optical component technology not to be sold to companies like ZTE. What is the position of Luxembourg? Does it feel as if it's between a rock and a hard place? Because uh, a lot of times these rules and regulations will make it more difficult for companies all over the world
4: to do business with other companies. Yes, I think there's a a few uh, issues that need to be covered here uh, about your question, which is a very legitimate one. Obviously, a country like mine is for open trade as far as possible, uh, bringing down uh, trade barriers uh, and other obstacles, and, and also making sure that the EU as such doesn't build fences and and go the protectionist route. So that's the general principle. Having been a diplomat I uh, for 20 years, I very well know that some strategic material cannot be sold to other countries. So I think uh, you have to put this in parallel Uh, Open trade is one thing, Uh, strategic issues is another. We're a member of NATO, we're going to comply comply with NATO rules, obviously, and uh, we need to abide by those rules.
1: You know, as we talk about trade concerns, I know the ECB members have been uh, raising the issue that any trade skirmish could potentially slow growth. We are getting some disappointing numbers out of the European region. Uh, Today we saw slowing inflation uh, throughout. What do you make of this? Are we seeing sort of uh, the peak of, of the growth cycle in Europe?
4: Oh, I think it's uh, really a little bit early or hasty to, to draw that conclusion uh, uh, based on a few m- weekly or monthly uh, figures I mean the IMF uh, uh, came out with new figures of growth for Europe uh, yesterday I'm going to attend uh, the spring meeting of the IMF tomorrow in Washington and uh, for Europe the growth is forecast to be three point uh, sorry 2.4 uh, percent uh, uh, this year uh, slightly higher than anticipated and it's going to be three point 8% worldwide, due mostly to a pickup in international trade and a pickup of investment. And if I look at Europe, uh, growth has only been back since one year, one year and a half. So our economic cycle uh, is younger than the one in the United States. And then I must say, with the very accommodative monetary policies that we have in the United States and Europe, this is obviously underpinning uh, growth and international trade in the future. So I'm more optimistic.
1: Fabulous. Pierre Gramegna, thank you so much for being here. Pierre Gramegna is Minister of Finance for Luxembourg, uh, joining us on his way to the IMF meeting, where no doubt they will be speaking about all of these issues, growth, trade, headwinds, the like. We'll be hearing more, I'm sure, as they meet. It has become something of a playground brawl that has entered the upper echelons of major Wall Street firms. I'm talking about Blackstone and Goldman Sachs, and I'm talking about a deal having to do with credit default swaps uh, related to Havnanian, New Jersey's biggest home builder. Here to talk about the latest in this saga is Sridhar Natarajan, who has been covering this amazingly uh, and joins us now. He covers all things having to do with credit for Bloomberg. So Sri, this out for us uh, with respect to a particular lunch that recently took place.
5: Right. And I think uh, we've discussed this a little bit bit before, but really what this goes back to is this uh, sneaky, naughty trade that uh, Blackstone struck up at the end of last year with a almost bankrupt company where they get paid out on some insurance-like derivatives. The only problem, Goldman is on the other side of the trade, and uh, they're not quite fans of this trade. We've already seen lawsuits slapped on this case. Blackstone's been accused of fraud and manipulation. But at the same time, those guys on the other end who might have to make big payouts to Blackstone want to make sure they can avert that outcome. So when uh, Lloyd Blankfein uh, met John Gray, the next head of Blackstone, and I'm assuming it was a regular relationship builder meeting just to talk about all things under the sun, how they could do a little more business together, this little deal came up. And as you can imagine, it probably got a little awkward.
0: What kind of money are we talking about here?
5: And, and that's the amazing thing here. The company that we're talking about has a market cap of under 300 million. What's at stake for Blackstone and Goldman is, is a decent amount of money for Blackstone. This could be hundreds of million dollars in payout. For uh, Goldman, the losses could be uh, would likely be south of 100 million, if if at all. But but what's weird is no one wants to back down, and I guess. Uh... When you think you're right, uh, when you think the other party's wrong, why back down? And the takeaway for me is when elephants go to fight, it's the egos that get trampled.
1: Well, yeah, that's what that's what I was going to ask you. I mean, how much is this just a a chess game uh, among people who were brilliant as children at chess and are still brilliant at chess and they want to outsmart one another and the stakes are just going up and up? How much is that really what we're watching here?
5: That's what it truly feels to me like. Uh, Clearly Blackstone did something which is not a ordinary trade. But did, did they do something that falls outside uh, of the play box these guys get to play in? Uh, probably not. At least the judges so far, the legal argument doesn't seem to indicate that. And we will see how this pan out uh, over the next couple of months. But it, it does feel like a bit of I've been outsmarted. I need to hit
1: back. Well, but just sort of to, to follow on to what you're saying, the stakes seem to be raised uh, increasingly. There already has been some withdrawal from, uh, from Goldman Sachs on the part of Blackstone, correct? I mean, they've already reduce some of their business as a result of this trade.
5: Right. We've certainly seen that. GSO, which is the credit arm of Blackstone and is is the principal on the opposite side of Goldman on the trade, has already cut back on some of its trading with Goldman Sachs. And, And remember, Blackstone is a large, massive, important client for all of the banks. And there are some people within Goldman who are nervous that if this situation escalates further, you could see a further pullback in the business from them.
0: What was the actual business that went wrong?
5: With Hovnanian? Yeah. It's a home builder in 2008, like most other companies, too much debt, recession. That got them into a lot of trouble. Back then, through that period, Blackstone had previously done financing for them. But 10 years on, this is more not so much more about what's wrong with the business. It's about how we can help you. But first, we want to make sure we can make a good amount of money on side bets that we have on the company.
1: When is this whole affair going to get wrapped up?
5: I would like to think fairly soon, but that's what I thought You're back like, in the for the I wrote sake the of my story. life. <laughs> we, we have some interesting day. key dates coming up. May 1st is when the company you know defaults on a bond payment, which is critical to the deal that Blackstone struck up with this company. After that, you have a 30-day period. This then goes through uh, a trade group and the body determines who, who owes whom, how much. and uh, that's when this will pan out. and I, I think it's going to get uh, it's going to get a little bit uglier.
1: What about some of the other uh, companies that are involved here, the hedge funds and and such? Have they pulled back from Goldman? Or they're on the same side as Goldman? Well, some of them are on the
5: same side as Goldman. There are some folks who have uh, even jumped sides in the last four or five months. Again, like you said, Lisa, this is is, as much as people want to get indignant about uh, how right is it, is it fair, people also want to make money. And if they were on one side of the trade, they have jumped to the other side as long as they've spotted an opportunity to make money. Fair? <laughs>
0: okay. I think we'll just... <laughs> fair. I guess it's really about what you can prove and, and what you can do when you when you go to court with the lawyers, and they'll all make some money. Thanks very much, uh, uh, Sri Natarajan. He is our high-yield debt and syndicated loan reporter. It's sort of like writing a soap opera in a way. Much appreciated. Uh, great story on uh, the Bloomberg.